0: I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the heart his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment... For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for
1: that reading. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you. hope you're staying cool in this very hot, humid weather. Would you join me now in praying with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your faithfulness and for your kindness. Thank you that you are so faithful in summoning us every week to come and to receive the kindness of your grace. Father, no matter what we have done or failed to have done, no matter what we have been ignorant of, no matter what we knowingly have done against you, Lord, you are still good to your people, people who still need to grow in love and obedience to you. We thank you that you receive us not on the merits of our own, Living, But truly by the living and death of your son, Jesus Christ, the righteousness that has been given to us through faith by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we come to you now asking that you would bless us now as we sit under your word. Father, we recognize that you speak powerfully in a way that is so unique, that is so transforming when your people gather together in the context of corporate worship. And so, Lord, be exalted. And most importantly, fulfill the promise that you made as your people exalt you, that you would come and speak, that you would come and bring heaven to earth, that our minds and our hearts would be changed and transformed, that our spirits would be stirred towards greater holiness and greater commitment to you. Lord, would you uh, enable us by your spirit to receive everything that you have to teach us in this word. Lord, regardless of whatever distracting thoughts, whatever anxieties, whatever fears we may have brought with us through these doors, by your spirit, would you banish them out of our hearts, out of our minds, so that we could be fully attentive and fully present by what you have to teach us today. And we ask, most importantly, that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me, let me ask you guys a couple of questions this afternoon. Have you ever had a moment in life where all you could do was just go, ah. You ever had a bad day to where at the end of it, all you could think of doing was go, ah. You ever have one of those weeks where as soon as it ends, all you could think of doing is not go out and party, but just sit in your room and just go, ah. You ever have one of those years or maybe a series of years where it just seemed like all throughout, you just kept going, ah, You ever look back on your life or maybe where you're at right now in your life and all you can think of doing, all that you can scrounge up within yourself in terms of how you want to respond to your life is just basically go, do you ever sigh? The sigh. Of course you do. I do. We all do. We all sigh. In fact, according to the experts, we sigh on average every five minutes. And this reality is something that even the Bible recognizes. Believe it or not, there's actually a specific word the Bible uses to describe this heavy-hearted breath of air that we exhale every time we're frustrated, every time we're angry, and every time we're just fed up with life. It's a Hebrew word simply referred to as hebel. Hebel. And it literally means breath of air. And we see that word scattered all throughout this book that we've been studying for the past couple of weeks, the book known as Ecclesiastes. Now, In our English Bibles, which is translated from the Hebrew, we don't see the word hebel. We see the English equivalent, which in our scripture is translated as vanity. Or the King James refers to as meaninglessness, right? Vanity upon vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. All of life is meaningless, says the preacher. And one of the questions that we want to ask as we go through this ancient book known as Ecclesiastes is this one. Is there anything that we can do, anything that we can turn to that could alleviate this chronic sense of meaninglessness, hopelessness that we all feel to where it exasperates us in such a way that all we can think of doing is just going, ah, sighing? Well, if you've been with us these past few weeks, you would know that Solomon has tried to answer that question through the various case studies, various investigations that he has done. Solomon has looked at various things under the sun in this world to where if he could find something that could alleviate, something that could finally cause him to not want to sigh so much. A couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about the first investigation that he did, which is the investigation of pleasure. He asked, will a life of pleasure, if living a life of hedonism, will that cause me to stop sighing so much? Will that cause me to stop feeling like as if life is purposeless or, and meaningless? Turns out it didn't happen. Then he looked at another investigation. He looked into the case study of wisdom. He thought, well, maybe if I just learn things, maybe if I acquire knowledge, maybe if I know how things work, maybe I'll have more sense of control over this uncontrolling, chaotic life, and maybe I'll sigh even less. But again, we saw last week, that didn't work. Which leads us to the investigation that he turns to today. He looks at something else to see if maybe this particular thing could cause him to sigh not as often to where he doesn't say meaningless, meaningless. And what is this thing? He looks at this idea of hard work. Hard work. Hard and honest work. And so as we continue our sermon series through Ecclesiastes, let's consider what Solomon shares with us as he investigates this idea that hard work could somehow give our lives more meaning and hence cause us to sigh less. Three things I want to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about the hopefulness of hard work. The hopefulness of hard work. Then I want to talk about the hopelessness of hard work. The hopelessness of hard work. And then finally I want to end it with the only hard work that offers true hope. Okay, The hopefulness of work, the hopelessness of work, and the only hard work that offers true hope. Okay, Let's jump right in. First point, the hopefulness of hard work. Let's have our passage up on the screen in just a moment. And let's skip down all the way down to verse 24. And let's just read the first half of verse 24 where Solomon writes this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, I want to draw your attention to that phrase in verse 24, eat and drink. Here's something that you may not be aware of, a little Bible trivia here. Whenever you see that phrase, eat and drink, that is referring to a specific idea. You see, in the ancient world, this idea of eating and drinking was always in the context of a great In the ancient world, whenever civilizations went into great battle with one another, one of the things that they would do before and after the battle is that they would always eat They would always drink. They would always celebrate right before they got into this great battle. And whoever won this battle, they would, again, eat and drink. They would celebrate. And when you see this reference in the Bible, that's what it's trying to convey. Eat and drink assumes this idea of a great battle that is about to be fought or a great battle that was just won. So, for example, a couple weeks ago, Pastor James, in his sermon, referenced the movie Now, for those of you who haven't seen the movie 300, let me just give you a quick synopsis. 300 is basically about the great battle of Thermopylae where 300 brave Spartan soldiers fought against the invading armies of the Persian Empire, right? And in one part in the movie, the 300 Spartans took down the first round of soldiers, right, that the Persian Empire said. They just viscerated. They just totally destroyed them. Okay, And after they destroyed these people, they knew that another battle was coming. And so in this little eye of the storm, the leader of the 300, King uh, Leonidas, he said these powerful words to inspire his men to get ready. He said this, Spartans, ready your breakfast and eat hearty, for tonight we dine in hell. (laughs) In other words... Eat and drink, right? I mean, it's not a word-by-word correspondence, but that's the same idea behind what Solomon here is saying, eat and drink. In fact, if you read other parts of the Bible, you see this phrase over and over again, eating and drinking, always in the context of a war, a war that was just fought or about to be fought. Right? For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, you hear the story of King David. During this time, he's running away from King Saul because King Saul wants him dead. So what does he do? He hides amongst the Philistines. Right? In order to show his devotion to the Philistines, he fights battles against the Philistine empire. One of these battles resulted where David's family and all of David's property was taken away in one particular battle where the Philistines lost By the group of the Amalekites. The Amalekites basically kidnapped all of David's family and took all their stuff. And so, David, coming back from battle, seeing his family gone, all of his property gone, he chases after the Amalekites because he wants his family back and he wants to get his stuff back. In this chapter, a guide leads him to the camp of the Amalekites. And listen to what he witnessed once he got to the camp. It said this So he, David's guide, led David to them, the Amalekites, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields doing what? Eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amounts of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. This phrase, eating and drinking, in the ancient world and even in the Bible always conveys, always assumes this idea of a battle that was so worthy of being celebrated before the battle was fought. And especially after the battle was won. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor John, this is all a nice Bible trivia. But what in the world does any of this have to do with me? What is all this reference of eating and drinking and celebrating and feasting and fighting these voluntary battles? What does that have to do with me here and now? Well, I think Solomon begins to tell us the answer to that question. When you consider the next phrase that he says after eating and drinking, what's the phrase right after he says eating and drinking in verse 24? What do he say? And find enjoyment in his toil. That word toil is simply the word that would encapsulate the idea of hard work, right? So when he says a man should nothing better for a man to enjoy his toil, what he's really saying, nothing for a man but to enjoy his hard work. But not just any kind of hard work, hard work that's honest, hard work that is uh, righteous, hard work that has integrity, hard work that's good, honest work. And the way I know this is because in the second half of verse 24, Solomon describes the rewards that you get from this hard work as, quote, what? From the hand of God. God would never reward someone for their work unless that work was honest, was good, had integrity, was righteous work. Okay, So putting all this together, what is Solomon talking about here? And again, what does this have to do with us? Here's what he's talking about. Solomon is telling us about an investigation that he did regarding a certain belief that was very popular during his time in the ancient world. And that belief went like this. Life is a battle. Life is filled with obstacles and risks that can lead you to failure and to disappointment. But if you work hard, if you work honestly then you can overcome these things and you can triumph over life. Or in other words, life sucks. (laughs) Reality sucks. But if you work hard, if you work honestly, if you play by the rules, then life will suck less and therefore you will sigh less. This is the belief that Solomon is testing out. And believe it or not, This belief is still very pervasive in our society today. This is a belief that we hear over and over in our country, in our culture, over and over today. Back in 2006, the movie Rocky Balboa came out. You know, one of the many Rocky movies that came out. And just in case you haven't seen that particular Rocky movie, let me just quickly tell you what it's about. Rocky Balboa is the former heavyweight champion of the world, right, perhaps one of the greatest boxers, according to this movie, that ever lived. But in this movie, he's old, I mean, he's really old. He's weak. He's nowhere near the state of uh, heavyweight perfection that he was over 30 years ago. And yet, he still struggles with this sense of significance. And so you know what he decides to do? He decides, you know what? In order for me to prove to see if I still have it in me, if I still have the eye of the tiger, I'm going to go ahead and fight the current heavyweight champion of the world. A man in his prime, a man half my age. I want to prove it to myself that I still have it in me. Later on in this movie, his adult son confronts him outside of his restaurants, and this is what he says to his dad, to Rocky. Now I'm asking you as a favor not to go through with this, okay? This is only gonna end up bad for you, and it's gonna end up bad for me. Don't you care what people think? Doesn't it bother you if people are making you out to be a joke and that I'm gonna be included in that? Do you think that is right? Do you? Obviously, as Rocky is trying to promote this fight, people are laughing at him because he's nowhere near as great as he once was. Rocky hears this rebuke from his son, sits there for a couple seconds, and this is what he says to his son. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life, but it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that, and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what, no matter what happens. You're my son. And you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Rocky is preaching the very belief that Solomon is testing out to see if it is true. Right, The belief that says, yes, life is a battle. Yes, reality sucks. But if you work hard, if you play by the rules, if you keep fighting, then you can have a sense of significance. Then you can have a sense of meaning. All you got to do, he says... The last statement to a son is what? Believe in yourself. And there it is. The underlying hope that drives this belief of hard work. You see, the underlying question that Solomon really wants to know if it's true in his investigation of hard work is this. Is it really true that all you have to do is really just believe in yourself? Right? Do you have to be like Thomas the Train and just have this mindset, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can? Is that really the best way in overcoming this sense of meaninglessness in your life? Is believing in yourself enough in overcoming the hopelessness you feel in a reality that just feels so tough? Is believing in yourself enough in making you to stop sighing so much? Well, the answer to this question leads me to my next point, the hopelessness of hard work. After testing out this belief that says hard and honest work pays off, Solomon comes to his conclusion. He's discovered something. He's discovered the answer. And what is the answer that he's discovered? He says it in the beginning of verse 8. What does he say? I hated all my toil. I hated all my hard work. I hated all my honesty. I hated all playing by the I hated it all. That's strange. He starts off with this belief thinking that good, hard, honest work pays off. But after trying it out, he comes to the conclusion, no, it doesn't. Hard and honest work does not pay off, right? He starts off by saying there's nothing better than for a man to enjoy his toil. But then he says, no, I hated all my toil. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Solomon is angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because this belief that says that if you play by the rules, if you work hard, if you believe in yourself, life will get better. He realized that is a lie. It is complete farce. It's not true. Here's the question. How did Solomon realize that was not true? He tells us in verse 18 and 19. Let's read it again. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, just a couple of reflections from these two verses. Two impressions that you get when you read verses 18 and 19. First impression is Solomon appears to be very old as he's writing these words. Because he's talking about a successor. He's talking about someone who's going to take over the hard work that he put so many years into, right? Which in this case would be the kingdom of Israel. People don't talk about a successor until they're at a certain point in life, at a certain age in life, where they know they can't keep doing what they've been doing, what they've been working so hard for. So by referring to a successor, you get the impression that Solomon must be pretty old as he's writing these words. The second impression that you get from these two verses is that Solomon must have been somewhat successful, maybe even very successful in all of his hard work. He must have built something so impressive, something so important, that there was this sense of this work that he did to keep going after he's gone, hence the need for successor. And indeed, if you read the first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Kings, you see how Solomon did some great impressive things during his kingship as king of Israel. In the first 11 chapters, you read about how Solomon achieved a level of accomplishments that no other king after him was able to repeat. This man toiled hard, and he toiled like no other king after him. None. And yet, even with all this impressive achievements, even in spite of all the great accomplishments that he's done, what does he say in verse 19 as he reflects on it? What does he say? This also is what? Vanity. There it is again. This also is Hebel. As I think about all the great things that I've done, as I think about all the good that I provided for other people as the king of Israel, all I can feel in response is, <sighs> meaningless. Why? Why, Solomon? Why are you still sighing when you consider some of the great things that your hard, honest work has done? Why do you still sigh, Solomon, when you consider the results of what happens when you believe in yourself, all the great achievements that you've done? Why do you still sigh, Solomon? The answer, because he thought about what would happen to all of his work after he was gone by thinking about the person who would take over the throne after he would be gone, a young Israelite prince by the name of Rehoboam. When Solomon was aware that his son Rehoboam was going to take over the throne, The only response Solomon could have when he thought about his son taking over was this. (sighs) And indeed, if you read 1 Kings again, you'll realize that Solomon was very right to feel that way because this knucklehead of a boy named Rehoboam completely messed everything that his father worked so hard for. Rehoboam has the single responsibility of being the king who completely shattered the kingdom of Israel. He is responsible for shattering the union between the tribes of Israel to where even after him, they never got back together again. Rehoboam ruined everything that his father worked so hard for. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, poor Solomon. It must be so hard, you know, this problem that you have that your kingdom won't Keep going after you're gone. You know, meanwhile, the rest of the people in the world who live during your time are dying of starvation. They don't know if they're going to live another day. But you, you're worried about your precious kingdom going on. Solomon sounds like one of those, you know, snobby, rich, powerful people who have first world problems, right? You guys know what first world problems is. First world problems would be kind of like that stereotypical millionaire going to Starbucks asking for a two-shot latte. But the barista accidentally only gave one shot. And now he thinks it's the end of the world. How dare you give me? It's the one-shot espresso, you know. Who do I need to talk to? Ah! Jane probably has seen such horrific people in her line of career, right? Is that what Solomon is doing? Is Solomon complaining in the equivalent of an ancient first world problem? I don't think so. And here's why. When Solomon is complaining about what's going to happen to the future of all that he worked so hard for, he's not really complaining about the security of his kingdom. You know what he's really complaining about? He's complaining about the underlying hope that drove him to work so hard to build this great kingdom. Which, if you remember from my first point, is what? What was the underlying hope that drives us to work so hard? Believing in yourself, right? Isn't that what Rocky told us? You gotta believe in yourself. Ain't you gonna have a life if you don't believe in yourself, right? Believing in yourself. Here's the question. What did Solomon believe about himself that inspired him to work so hard to build the great kingdom that he worked so hard to build? Well, let me illustrate with a movie that came out back in 2002 entitled About Schmidt, starring Jack Nicholson. For those of you who haven't seen About Schmidt, uh, it's about this retired businessman, actually uh, an insurance executive, an actuary. He retires at the beginning of the movie. Okay. And you can tell by Jack in his character, Warren Schmidt, that's his name, that he was a hard, honest working man. And one of the ways that you know he was a hard, honest working man is that as soon as he retires, he has no idea what to do with his life. He's completely lost. He's so disoriented. He just feels like he has no sense of meaning. It gets so bad that one morning he wakes up, showers, and puts on his suit, goes to his old office, right, and visits his successor, the young guy who took over for him. He sits in his old office and he asks his successor, hey, you know, I left you with a lot of stuff, and I'm sure there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of cases that I left for you that were still open and pending. A lot of, you know, new documents that came out that are very tricky. Can I help you with it? Do you need some help? Can I guide you in all of this? The young successor, you know, trying to hide, you know, facetious smiles. Says, what? Warren, you did such a great job. You oriented me so well, and you left everything so great. No, I'm sorry. You know, he politely declines his offer for help. You know, Jack Nicholson is disappointed, obviously, but he walks out of the office thinking, well, at least I know that the work that I did is continuing, that the good work that I thought was so meaningful for my life is keep going on now. So he walks out the office, happens to walk by the garbage, and guess what was piled right next to all of the garbage? All of his stuff that he left for this guy. All of his cases, all of his files, all of his special products that he created. All waiting, flies buzzing around. All those files that he worked so hard for. Hours where he missed dinners at home. Hours where he was away from his family. Hours that he thought was going to be worth it because it was going to be some good that was going to continue on. Even after I'm gone. There, rotting by the garbage. It's a pretty depressing movie. I don't recommend you watch it. It gets so bad that by the end of the movie, he writes this letter to an adopted African orphan he adopted. See, at one point in the movie, he was so depressed, he thought that if he adopted an orphan that he saw on TV, that he would feel better. And he actually writes this letter to this six-year-old African orphan. He writes this, I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose that most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? I am weak, and I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. Maybe in 20 years, maybe tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Once I am dead and everyone who knows me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you, (laughs) Warren Schmidt. He's writing to a six-year-old African orphan. (laughs) Look, you don't have to be a great king like Solomon, to sigh like Solomon. No. Because every single one of us, whether we're rich or poor, successful, not successful, beautiful, ugly, famous, obscure, all of us in here, we all want our lives to matter. Right? We all want our lives to matter. We want to believe that even though reality may seem meaningless, we are not meaningless. No, we want to believe that we can make ourselves meaningful And the most preeminent way in which we show how meaningful we are is by the hard, honest work and what that work can produce, right? That's what we believe. We want to believe that through our hard, honest work, driven by the assumption that we can believe in ourselves because we are meaningful, can make this world better not only for us but for those around us. Thereby making the world more beautiful, more safe, and less sighing. But Solomon realized that wasn't true. He realized that when he considered his son Rehoboam and knowing his son well, he knew his son could care less about his dad's legacy. He knew his son could care less about the work that his father put into the kingdom of Israel. Because his own son didn't think that what his dad worked so hard for was meaningful enough to keep continuing. He just wanted to do his own thing and he ended up destroying the kingdom of Israel. And as a result of pondering and being aware of all of this, Solomon could do nothing but just go, sigh. And at some point in your life, all of you in here are going to sigh just like him. Because just like Solomon and just like Warren Schmidt, you will realize that no one in this world seems to agree with the idea that you brought substantial meaning into the world. Because no one is willing to carry on what you work so hard to do. Which can only mean one thing. You're not as meaningful as you thought you were. Let me say that one more time. At some point in your life, all of you in here are going to sigh just like Solomon. Just like Warren Schmidt. Because just like them, you'll realize that no one in this world will agree with the belief that you bought into. That you brought substantial meaning into this world, evidenced by the fact that no one is willing to keep doing and carrying on what you worked so hard to do throughout your life. Which can only mean that you're not as meaningful as you thought you were. This is the stone cold truth. This is reality. And so here's the question. How to respond to that? How do we react to this? How do we face the seemingly meaningless, hopeless truth that is so hard for us to accept? Is there anything that we can turn to, to where maybe we can find hope in this situation? Well, this leads me to my final point. The only hard work that offers true hope. Let's go back to that phrase that we started off with in my first point in verse 24. Eating and drinking. If you remember what I said there, my first point, that that phrase was always used in the ancient context of a battle. That was so worthy, so important that it was appropriate to celebrate it before you fought the battle and especially after you won the battle. But here's the question. What makes a battle worthy of celebration before and after? What is it about that particular battle that makes it appropriate for us to celebrate? Well, it's not too hard to figure out. People in the ancient world, they celebrated a great feast, eating and drinking before a great war. Great battle, why? Because they knew that battle was very important. There were a lot of things attached to this battle. So many stakes were high attached to this battle. They knew that this battle would change the outcome of the world. That this battle was so important, the world would never be the same after. And therefore, in recognition of this reality, ancient culture would celebrate. Because they knew that this battle, there were so many things at stake, So many things that were so important. Cultures, nations, families were at stake. And at the other end of it, the world would be, hopefully, much better. Which is why other people, when they won the battle, they would celebrate. Why? Because they won. And not only did they win, that also means the world is better. The world isn't what it was before the battle. The world is now forever changed for the better. That's why people celebrated it. Here's the question for you Bible scholars. Do you guys remember what Jesus did right before he went to the cross? The night before he was crucified, what did Jesus do with his disciples? He ate. He drank. Right? He celebrated a meal. We still remember this meal in the worship service in the context of the Lord's Supper once a month. Why did Jesus celebrate this meal? Why did he feast with his disciples? What is he trying to tell his disciples? What is he trying to tell us? He's telling us that he was getting ready for a battle. He was getting ready for a war that was so important. After it, the world would never be the same. He was going to have to face a battle by himself that was so crucial that you and I and this entire reality would never be the same. After it, he went to the cross. Jesus going to the cross was a battle that Jesus had to face. You know, if you're here investigating Christianity, you may have heard this idea of the Christian belief that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when you hear that, you kind of get the impression that Jesus was victimized, that Jesus was brutally defeated. You know, by the Jewish authorities who conspired to kill him or the corrupt Roman politicians who used the legal system against him. And we can say, oh, look at this Jesus. He's a victim of gross injustice, right? He has been defeated. But, you know, the Bible doesn't interpret Jesus' death on the cross his defeat. No, quite the opposite. The Bible perceives Jesus going to the cross as him going to battle and him winning this battle. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death death when jesus went to the cross he went to fight he didn't come to be defeated he came to win who did he fight not the jewish authorities not the roman politicians he came to save them he came to fight and to defeat the devil the devil why Because the devil is the sole person responsible for why you and I feel meaningless and why we are meaningless, why we are failures. The devil is the one who leads us into temptation. The devil is the one who deceives us into thinking God is our enemy when he's our greatest lover. The devil is the one who accuses us of our sins. The devil is the one who makes us hate ourselves into thinking that God could never love us. The devil is our enemy and he is the one responsible as to why you feel like a failure, why you feel meaningless why you feel like you are a nobody. Jesus came to undermine the work of Satan. He came to undermine sin in your life, by dying on the cross as your substitute forgiving all of your sins, past, present and future, and giving you eternal life and giving you the status of a child, to where if you are in Christ, you have meaning. That was the battle. Here's the question: Did Jesus win the battle? He sure did. Because what does the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, tell us that we're going to do once, with Je- once we're with Jesus forever, reigning with him? What does it say? Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they can have access, they can eat to the tree of life. And they can enter into the city by the gates. And verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who here say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wants it take the water of life free of charge. Again, this imagery of eating and drinking after the complete war is over. Where Jesus reigns and Satan is completely defeated. What's the point of all this? Here's the point. Jesus is the only person whose hard work, whose hard righteous work brings meaning into your meaningless life and into this meaningless world. It's by believing in Jesus, not believing in yourself, to where you can be inspired to do something meaningful in your life, to where you become a meaningful person right here, right now. It is not through your hard work that gives you a sense of meaning. It is only through the work of Jesus His hard work on your behalf that makes you a meaningful person, a person that matters, a person of significance. Do you know what that means, practically speaking? It means this, and I want you to listen to me carefully. If you turn to Jesus and trust in his hard work on your behalf to give you a sense of meaning and a sense of I matter, you know what that means? That means you can work hard, you can work honestly, and you can focus on that. And not worry about whether or not all of the work that you built up is going to carry on. The likelihood is this, guys. Everything that you work for in a couple generations is going to be forgotten. right? And the people who know you are going to be dead. And therefore, you're going to be completely forgotten. That's true. Everything that you work so hard to build up in this world in eventually a couple generations is going to be completely forgotten. And all traces of its existence is going to be gone. But so what? If Jesus' hard work on the cross gives you meaning, so what? You see, we have this idea that the way that we can have a sense of meaning and a sense of that we matter is if the things that we create, the things that we work hard for has a legacy and it keeps going and we're always remembered over and over and over for generations upon generations. Right? Our sense of meaningfulness is attached to that. But the reality is that's just not going to happen. But you know what? It's okay. Because for us followers of Jesus, our sense of meaning, our sense of value does not come from our hard work or what we build up. It's what Jesus builds up through you in the hard work that he's done on your behalf on the cross. So you can focus on working hard and working honestly and blessing the people around you who are around to receive it. And not be so fixated on whether or not it's going to continue on after. Because your sense of meaning is not attached to that. Do you get that? You know, we come from a culture, many of us, Asian culture, where legacy is so important, right? Some of you in here are married. Some of you in here maybe one day going to be parents. And let's be honest, you guys, you future fathers in here. You know, I know for many of us, when we get married and we have a child, the first thing that we hope for is what? Is it a boy? Is it a boy? Right? And your parents... When they think about being grandparents for the first time, they may not say it to your face, but they're hoping, oh, is it a boy? Is it a son? Right? Of course, when they tell them it's a girl, they're like, oh, yeah, you know. Actually, my mom was ecstatic when Kara was born because she already had two grandsons with my older brother and they were driving her crazy. And so I think she was looking forward to a granddaughter for once, right. But for the most part, in our Asian culture, you know, a son. Yes, why? Because he carries on the name. He carries on the memory of our legacy. Scripture says no. Our legacy is not attached to a son that we produce. Our legacy is attached to the son of God through him and what he does for us. And now through his hard work carries on a legacy that we get to be a part of that goes on forever and ever and ever throughout all eternity. And so here's my challenge to you. Work hard. Work honestly. And through that work and honest work, bless the people around you. But don't attach your sense of meaningfulness to that. Because if you do, you're going to end up like Solomon. You're going to end up like Warren Schmidt, completely depressed. Always remember your sense of value, your sense of meaningfulness is not attached to yourself, i.e. believing in yourself and therefore your hard work. It comes from you believing in the son of God and the hard work he's done for you. That and only then is how you can focus on a hard and honest work that actually fixates on blessing others rather than seeing it as a self-serving purpose for your own glory. So here's my question, NCF, what's it going to be? Are you going to hold on to this belief that it's up to you to establish your legacy through your hard work as a result of you believing in yourself? Or is your meaningfulness going to be attached to the eternal work of God that he did through his son Jesus Christ to where nothing can be taken away from you, not even death? If you hold on to that, if you trust that gospel, you will find one more reason to sigh less in this world filled with sighs. Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more about this world and why it makes us sigh so much, God, we ask that you would help us to always retain the perspective of the gospel. Father, it is easy, especially in a city like New York, especially in a culture that we live in as ours, Asian culture, where we can fixate so much on working hard, working honestly, to where that would give us a sense of meaning, a sense of value. But Lord, we know that just like Solomon and just like Warren Schmidt has discovered, that is just not true. And so, Father, I pray that you will guard our hearts so that we would not fall into that kind of folly. Lord, help us to never fall into this idea that it's up to us in terms of believing in ourselves and thereby inspiring us to work hard in such a way that we think we will be forever remembered. Lord, guard us from such folly. Help us to instead remember that it is only through the work of your son. And it is only through him that we have meaning. That it's only through him that we matter. God, would you help us to remember these things so that we can focus on working hard, working honestly for the good of this world and for the glory of your great name that will be forever remembered. We ask that you would help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.